0: You are listening to the weekly Great Governance Podcast hosted by Dr. Harlan. So why do we do what we do? We are on a mission to find and voice the hidden stories of excellence in local government so that others are motivated to lead and transform communities. We share information and profile local government practitioners and active citizens who are ethically leading change and innovation in communities and showcase this on our various digital media platforms.
1: This morning we're privileged to have with us Quentin Adams, whom I've known for a very, very, very long time. Welcome
0: on our platform, Quentin. Thanks, uh, Dr. Alan Klute, for this opportunity. It's nice to talk to you virtually, and I'm looking forward to this interview.
1: Great stuff. So in one minute, tell us about yourself and why is it that you do what you do?
0: I'm a psychologist by profession. I was at the University of Stellenbosch for 12 years. And during 2002, I went to a school and they identified a, a learner with ADHD. And they've asked me to do some therapy with this learner. But then I said, let me first ask him a few questions. And then this boy in 2002 said to me, but uh, uncle, I'm not staying in a house, staying in the bush. And then the, I asked him, uh, Uh, the bush and then he took me to his shack and that's where we have started the work regarding interventions with informal settlements in 2002 so it's almost 20 years. So I don't practice psychologists, the community is my uh, practice and I also develop social interventions regarding violence, poverty and unemployment for government and other NGOs or companies. So that's what I'm basically doing.
1: Why is it? What moves you to get up in the morning? Why do you do what you do?
0: The reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is that I I believe that I can make a significant impact. I can transform society with my skills and with my knowledge that I've uh, gained through psychology and philosophy and sociology. I can make a contribution and also a significant contribution. And that gives me the reason why I'm here and, and why I'm doing what I'm doing because I know I can go out and transform society in a significant way. And that's the kind of work that I'm currently doing going out every morning and uh, secondly is also that I can combine my professional training my theory the different models that I study at the university and I still lecture on a part-time basis to master students not only locally but also internationally so I can combine the two with the world of theory the and so do you consider and yourself a bit academic and transforms yeah i yeah, more a public activist, a public intellectual, where I do write, uh, but not only peer review articles. I've written one or two articles and a few chapters in academic textbooks. But I see myself as an activist, a social activist, because I think and I believe that we need to transform what's much needed at this point in time in our society, especially in the context that we live, where we see this high inequality gap in our society.
1: Okay, now that we understand Why you do what you do? Maybe you must tell us what it is exactly that you do in communities.
0: As I said that 20 years ago, I started to work in uh, informal settlements. For the first phase of that kind of work, I was just developing intervention programs for children and families in the informal settlement. Um, I was still at the university at that time, or I started at the university and I was doing this kind of work, and then I realized, but there's a a new and a deeper dimension of human behavior and human experience, It is not all stunting, you will see malnutrition, you will see premature deaths, you will see dilapidated structures, deep-seated poverty, and all those experiences, according to my view, is not always captured in academia or in academic Articles. So, what I do on a daily basis uh, for the past twenty years, I go into informal settlements. I understand the situation, identify the problem, and develop solutions for people living in informal settlements. And in for the first phase, I was just supporting them with material informal structures and their terrible storm in Cape Town, I've decided to physically help them to build new informal structures or shacks as they know it in the community. So what we are currently doing is that we have increased our efforts, so we have got a team now and uh, go on a daily basis looking at the needs and the challenges of people living in informal structures, in informal settlements.
1: So Quentin, who supports you with this work? It sounds like a mouthful of what you guys are doing. It almost sounds like you're almost working in the terrain of the municipality. E
0: We don't get the government support, although we work within the government legislative framework, we have to respect the framework. And there's a particular reason for that. So we have a a board, we have a a management team, we have full-time workers, and then we have temporary workers, and we have a lot of volunteers in the organization. That's why we can attend the shack fires. We can do aid and relief, but the core business of the organization is to help and restore human dignity for people living in informal structures India. Formal settlements, so we don't get uh, government funding. I believe in developing a social entrepreneurship model where we sometimes buy wood or pearl in the and scar so that sustainable money. And when the funding is terminated, then the project is finished. And that's why we keep on going because of the social entrepreneurship model. We have a few donors, a few friends, and people that support us. Most of the of the income is based on a social entrepreneurship model where we make money to serve the needs of people in informal settlements, but we don't get government funding at this point in time.
1: Explain to me social entrepreneurship.
0: Yeah, social entrepreneurship uh, is a very interesting uh, concept. Is that In 2008, I did a presentation on social entrepreneurship for the way forward for NGOs. It's basically where we become part of the value chain, and uh, part of the value chain is to see how we can extract value. In our case, we deal a lot with, with wood, So part of our operations and our our business in order to ensure that we're sustainable is we buy wood and we sell wood and with the profits that we make is that we use it for the project and that is basically the social entrepreneurship model is to make profit for a social cause and i think we are fairly successful with this model and we want to increase this model that's why we can run this project for the past 20 years because of the social entrepreneurship model we make money for a social course and um, i've realized that this is the way to go because we're working in existing and as a lot of parts of and uh, especially with us in the wood and the aluminium sheets industry it's huge opportunities so we sell and we use it for the course that we are addressing at the moment
1: so quentin you also work with municipalities do you work with them or do they see you as a threat how do you manage because you know housing informal settlements that's really the terrain of local government how do you work with municipalities
0: yeah, we, uh, I think we have to respect the national framework for housing delivery. So we work within the parameters of the housing framework. The housing framework consists of formal housing and informal housing. We work within the informal housing sector. There's a new policy, Breaking New Ground. And uh, what we are doing is we are part of the informal or shack upgrading project within the Breaking New Ground. So when it comes to To municipalities, it's important to understand the role of the municipalities. The municipalities have a legislative framework. They identify uh, the informal settlement. And if it is not a formal informal structure, which means it is just a pocket of informal houses, then that structure needs to apply to the municipality so that they can be registered as a formal informal settlement. And the reason why that process is so important is that so that they can get basic services like toilet and water. And we are working now with the informal settlement that went through that process. They started off as an informal uh, pocket of houses and they applied to the municipality. Now they are uh, registered formal informal settlement. And the reason why we have to understand that legislative process is that when we want to build, we need to get permission from the municipality that we can build. Because sometimes if we build for people who are not on the housing waiting list, then what we are doing then is illegal. So we work within the legal framework. Otherwise, the red ends will come or in Cape Town, the law enforcement will come and they will break our know, structure. But if we have the documents in place, and it's important that we can show them that we are not part of the problem. We are part of the solution by working within this informal or shed upgrading process. However, with all the work that we are doing and that we have done within informal settlements, I haven't seen the councillor at all. I haven't seen the council at all. They know what we are doing. They haven't come to visit us. We worked in the informal settlement for 12 years. Freedom Farm. we built over 50 sheikhs there, I haven't seen the councillor there and that is the same with most of the wards. They only come there when there's a problem or when there's a police altercation and uh, are not directly involved. So okay. I think that is a big concern when it comes to me.
1: Why do you think councillors, you know, and it's not probably just in the city of Cape Town, why is it that councillors have been absent?
0: I think there's no political will to solve the informal settlement crisis, that's why We have such a big backlog. You know, Alan, there's some areas where the councillors cannot even go to those informal settlements because they are afraid of the people. They don't, they haven't built a relationship. I can mention a few informal settlements where the councillor cannot even attend those meetings. Because of lack of service delivery, they're waiting for the toilets, they're waiting for water and sanitation. And it's very difficult for the councillors to come to those areas. And I must be honest with you, when it comes to informal settlements, we have seen a reluctance from most of the councillors to really get involved with informal settlements. And in some informal settlements, they're even afraid to go there. We work now in a, in one of the areas where we haven't seen the councillor. We haven't seen him for six months. And now there's a new one and they still have to get the hold of this guy or this person to introduce him to the informal settlements. But that's one of the reasons why we have such a big problem in terms of informal settlements. Formal settlements
1: in Cape Town it's interesting that you I've never heard of formal informal settlements and, and so that's a new one which leads me to my next question you know the word shack I know you you are known as the shack builder but the name shack isn't it don't people find it offensive have you not had pleasure
0: to rather call it the informal settlement builder? why Shack I think it's better than a hockey. Uh, they, they use the word a hockey or a hawk. When you use the word shack, it's uh, first of all, it is in government policy. They talk about shack upgrading projects, they're talking about bottom up approach regarding shack building. So when you talk about the shack, people know exactly what it is. There's no confusion, no ambiguity regarding the name so that's not offensive i think the one thing that is really offensive when people tell you that they are living in a walk they are living in a gully and you get even worse uh, words or descriptions regarding the informal structure but when you talk about the shack then they know exactly and it is also in the government policy and then very interesting i was on a radio program and then people phone and they said can we speak to the shack builder and then they called me the shack builder and i shared it with the guys and they said okay Let's change the name of the organization to the Shack Builder so that people know exactly what we're busy with. So, that name really came from people that phone in at the radio station.
1: Quentin, I'm sure you move around not only in the Cape area. What has been some of the most rewarding experiences? Colin,
0: I think we, I think first of all, is the opportunity to travel into the abyss of poverty. We see deep levels of poverty that it's unimaginable it's deep seated and then secondly it is this d u humanization experience. I'm busy writing an article about Maslow's theory or the hierarchy of needs, where people assume that people have water, that they have sanitation, that they have a house. What happens if they don't have a house? And then that's when the downward cycle is happening, the dehumanization experience, and we see it. Because we really work from uh, what we call in science, social science, emic perspective, uh, inside a view. We go into the shack and we see, and we experience, and we smell. And then one of the biggest discoveries is that when I said people understand the statistics of poverty, but they don't understand the smell of poverty. And the smell comes from the fact that the, the shacks are closed. There's a lot of rats, um, red rat urine, red droppings, and then very important, the leaking pota potter, potter. But I think one of the interesting things that we've discovered, this is not a wicked problem. This is not an unsolvable problem. We can solve it. If you look at the dilapidated nature of these structures, um, that's why people are dying, that's why the budget Education is 6 billion for health and 3 billion and 2 billion or 1 billion for for housing. Why is the health budget allocation so high? Because of the the living conditions of people in these informal settlements. And we're sitting with a backlog of 600,000 people, families waiting on the housing list. And I think what is one of the biggest discoveries that we made is that we can change it. We can change it within two days, three days. I have invited Rosenbauer, a fire truck manufacturing company, their managing director to to come and visit us. And he came and he looked at our structure and he used the word that Our structures represent structural integrity. There are enough windows, the is 2.65. There's no leaks and rain and flooding happening in those informal structures. It's a a solvable problem. And I think those are some of the biggest discoveries that we make. And then what we also do is we accentuate the problem. We're saying that because of this, if we don't solve the housing crisis, uh, Cape Town will be in serious trouble for the next 10 years if we don't start to solve it. And we've got some ideas of how we think we should solve the problem.
1: So once I'm in a shack, I I may be in a shack today, but you guys come along and you turn my shack into a home, is that right?
0: Yeah, what we do is first uh, assess the shack and then we will... We were in New Orleans now in in June during the the storm and and there was a lady, I will never forget that, there was a lady she was lying on the bed and her legs were amputated, Um, but the bed was wet. And so I walked around the shack and then I realized, but there was a curtain in front of the window, but there were no glass. Sure. So that's why the rain came down on the bed. And that's what I said. And I said to the guys that went with me from radio Casey, all that you need to do is just fix the glass. You don't have to build a new place, just fix the glass. That's how simple it is. But you see, what's interesting is that what chaos theory says, you have to dance with the system, you have to understand the rhythm of the system, you have to feel the system, and then you have to get the leverage point, the, the point of entry where you can go in and you can change and transform. And sometimes we just have to fix a window, or sometimes we just have to redirect the water. I can remember we went to another shack and it was flooded. And then I said, let us just dig a, a small hole a whole day in front so that we can redirect it and there were no water in the in the shack and that's why I think what we need to do is we need to intervene and we need to make sure that it's a solvable problem, we can do something about it and we can restore the human dignity of people living in informal settlements.
1: And now Quentin, you and your team started the Backyard University, tell us about yeah, that.
0: That's so <laughs> yeah, a very interesting problem, how <laughs> yeah, it started. You know, I'm not in the business of calling myself names like the shack builder or the backyard varsity. We were busy with a backyard uh, dweller. There were about seven shacks on that yard. Seven shacks on that yard. And the problem with the shacks and the backyards is when one caught fire, then you can see the spread. And we dealt with 153 shacks in three months where we responded and provided support. So what happened in the beginning of this year, I asked 10 young people whether they can help us to remove the rubble. Then I asked them to help us to build the shack because they were just sitting in the street. And then I asked them to help with the building of the structure. And then I discovered after three hours, these guys, cannot. they they don't know how to saw, they don't know how to cut wood, they don't know how to eat a nail because they were just missing every time. And then I realized the problem with these young people, they're unemployed, but they're not employable because they don't have the skills. And then I asked them, can we turn the backyard shack into a training opportunity for them? So I started over with them and then I showed them how to measure, how to use a nail, how to use the saw, how to sharpen the saw, how to measure, how to level and then I think the second day a friend phoned me and he said, what are you busy with? And I said, I'm training young people at the backyard. And he said, oh, you're busy with the backyard varsity. And that's how the the name started with the backyard varsity. So what we have done its still a pilot project. Uh, We have identified 12 young people every time and we take them through theory. We teach them transformational leadership so that they can understand what is the problem. Some of them don't see the problem. They're sitting in the problem, but they can't identify the problem or see that it's a problem then secondly is project management we simplify project management costing is very important they need to understand the cost of the purlins the cost of the sheets etc etc and then the last is to understand the informal housing because six hundred thousand families they are living in informal structures in the western cape so then we have a practical component where we teach them how to make a miniature shack teach them basic hand tools and then the last week we take them on the on-site training experience when we take them into an informal settlement, we show and we demonstrate to them, because you must know most of them left school early. So the educational level is very low, the conceptualization, the, the fine motor skills, cross motor skills are extremely underdeveloped. And we take them through those processes and after three to four weeks, then they will be able to build and to fix a shack. They will understand it. And we also take them to the forest so that they can understand whether more about the wood industry. We take them to a roof, sheets, manufacturing plant, the big one, one of the biggest in Cape Town. And we expose them to these industries. And then after that, we make them part of the backup capacity. They stay in the network so that we can upskill them. And I must say 60 to 70% of those students are now part of, informal jobs they can now go to uncle jimmy and say uncle jimmy i know how to measure i know how to understand project management i can cost a shack i can do costing basic costing so that's what we're doing with the backyard varsity and today we're going to end up over a new share and we've trained about 12 to 15 uh, students in Etembe, Nika, So it's still a pilot project. So we're going to increase our efforts and then we're going to see how we're going to uh, credit some of these uh, courses that we are doing. But the basis of the learning is informal learning. And okay. secondly is to deal with the unemployment rate of, of young people.
1: Just a final question now, explain to us a typical day for the Shack Builder organization. What do you guys do? Do you just wake up and uh, what does a typical day or a typical week look like?
0: We divide our year into seasons. It depends on what season it is. If it is a winter season, then it's a completely different ball game because then we know we will get a lot of requests for aid and relief because there's a lot of flooding. It's unbelievable to see it. Some people will even ask us to use our small pump to come to their places, to pump out the water out of the shacks. That is one day. Sometimes we have to redirect the water because we're doing small things. I believe in this thing of doing small things, can have a major impact. We build a a breakwater wall in Kailitsa with rubble, where we redirected all the water away from the shacks. So that is in the winter. And then you get shack fire season. Shack fire season is where people are phoning during the middle of the night. There's a few shacks that have burned down. So we don't supply uh, material like roof sheets and pearl because it's quite expensive. But what do we have is we have food, we have a lot of wood, we have a lot of windows, uh, wooden windows and doors, and then we will get the truck and we will pick up and then we will deliver and we will support the family. Most of the time, the supporters is to explain the process. Now, the city of Cape Town has given a starter pack for free and the funding was stopped from national government uh, for the starter pack. So people are phoning us every day. Uh, We get about plus minus 20 phone calls because of shack fires. Shack fires are big in Cape Town. And then we have our normal project, the backyard basket, where we are training people. And then uh, fourthly is uh, when we are busy with, uh, uh, we are based in about seven sites. We have a site in Ghorat Braak where we are building in that informal settlement. Uh, The mayor is now interested uh, to get uh, involved. And then we have this international partnership with the Trondheim University, uh, which is very exciting. We did a presentation uh, six weeks ago to the United Nations conference on informal housing or housing. And yeah, so it's very, it's a very dynamic world, uh, Holland, because what you see and what you experience is really the the dehumanization, the deep levels of poverty and uh, that people are living in, in Cape Town, and especially with the backyard dwellers. You don't see the problem because they're living in the backyard. It's a hidden problem. But when you go behind that door, then you will see seven shacks. It's overcrowded. There's only one tab, one toilet. And, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's, a, it's a very dynamic, uh, very, very dynamic uh, work that we are doing. And we're doing also a lot of research about it, uh, because I think it's a uh, research paradise because of the unique experiences of what's happening in informal settlements.
1: I'm sure people ask you now, why did you get a real job?
0: This why, is a real
1: why job. You, I'm saying, what, <laughs> say, you know, go lecture at university, enjoy this privilege, or join a municipality, become a director. Quentin, go get yourself
0: a real job. Is that not what you hear sometimes? Yeah, in the beginning, people were told, and I I hear that quite often, and people asking, but uh, what we are doing, we're doing things on multi-level. It's a multi-systemic level, because I did a presentation last, uh, six weeks ago, to the United Nations, and it was very interesting, their comments. We have now a partnership with them and with the University of Architecture. And we're making big strides in academia. And uh, so I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. Because I believe we, what we are doing is, is just amazing. And it, it's, it's beyond life satisfaction because you're really changing the livelihoods of people. You can see it. And uh, because we are, uh, uh, we are more than just a voice, we accentuate the problem and we provide solutions. And we talk to international organizations. So there's a big debate about wood now, the rise of timber the Department of Forestry from the University of Stellenbosch. We are in a partnership to look at models uh, with the Norwegians. We're building a new model for informal settlements. And then we are part of, we've started now this international network of the 10 biggest slums in uh, Africa, of which Cape Town, of which Kaolitsa is the fifth biggest one. And that is the work because we, <laughs> we we spoke to the, the office of the presidency the other day and uh, regarding our work what we are doing so yeah I think it is more than just sitting in front of or having this benefits of having a formal job uh, I think this is uh, this, this is a very rewarding and and we're changing things we're changing things on policy level we're changing things on an international and global scale and then I think that the one thing that I like about our work we are consistent there's no uh, ambiguity in our focus our focus is in informal settlements and we have to solve that problem If we don't solve that problem then it's going to cause big problems for South Africa and especially in Cape Town Island if you look at the N7 the N1 and the N2 along those uh, national routes there are informal settlements there was one day last year when all those three national roads were closed because of uh uprisings in informal settlements And that's how serious is the problem. It's an interconnected problem. We cannot ignore it. If we ignore it, then it will become a bigger problem. And I believe that we have to solve these problems. And then lastly, I was approached by... uh a film company, they want to make a film, not a documentary about the life of the Shack Builder. So the script is finished. They're looking for funding. We have received one third of the funding. So not next year, I think next year, they will produce the film and then maybe in two two years time, it will be on the national circuit where we will address the sustainable development goals combined with the story of the Shack Builder. So I'm quite excited about that. Mm. Only have uh, done that if I was in the field. And I think we are on the, on the front and on cutting edge research and, and discoveries because we speak from the inside, not from the outside. We are in the situation, we are in the shack, we are in the water, we are there when the fire uh, are ravaging through the shacks in the backyards and we, we feel the pain and the dynamics of what's happening with people living in extreme poverty.
1: No, Quinton, thank you very much. You know, years back, you gave me a book, Brusco. And if I listen to you, (laughs) you become Brusco. You know, you have not just seen the problem, you've done something about the problem. And I want to commend you for the fantastic work that you and your team are doing. A final word of advice to municipalities listening. How can they support your work and what do you want them to do different?
0: I think um, what we have to do, we have to think out of the box. Uh, We know that there's a lot of pressure for the fact that the funding model and provision has changed. National government has decided only to allocate funding to certain groups, MK veterans, uh, the aged, the aged, and people with disabilities. But the problem is far bigger than that. And the problem is that if they, the the municipalities will will suffer the brunt of those policy decisions. But I think what we need to do is we look after we have to look at international funding to solve the housing problem because this backlog is just increasing. And uh, if the municipalities don't work and come up with solutions out of the box, and I think we have to look at the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals and the funding that is available. And we have to partner with municipalities with, because we can develop a new social compact for housing because if the housing problem is not solved in municipalities, then it will destabilize what's happening in the municipalities. So for my message to municipalities is let's form partnership, let's work with the international community, let's work with the Sustainable Development Goals, because if we don't solve it, then they will suffer. The municipalities will suffer the bond because of policy decisions made by the Department of Housing.
1: Fantastic. Well done, Quentin, and God bless you and with your work as you continue to be an upstander, not a bystander. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Dr. Alvin, Thanks for the interview.
1: To the amazing and talented Great Governance team, audio engineer Bandile Kosa, the voice, Mpumi and producer, Al Untung, respect and love. Keep the faith and let's work to make South Africa great, right where we are.
0: If you loved what you heard, subscribe to our Great Governance podcast that is available free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and of course also on our HRD Governance Facebook page and don't forget to tell a friend to tell a friend about us. Listen to learn.